Okay. Hey, it's Mark. And, um, I haven't been, um, too, uh, available lately, but I, I imagine most of you know that, uh, that Lynn, Lynn Shelton died, uh, at about, uh, 12.45 a.m. on um, Saturday morning. She was my partner. She was my girlfriend. She was my friend. And I loved her. I loved her. A lot. And she loved me. And I knew that. And I don't know that I'd ever felt what I felt with her before. I do know. Actually, I did not. I have not. And I was getting used to love in in the way of, of being able to accept it and show it properly in an intimate relationship. I was so comfortable with this person, with Lynn Shelton. And I and I'm not really that comfortable emotionally or otherwise, but I was. I was able to exist in a state of self-acceptance because of her love for me. And I made her laugh all the time. And she made me laugh and we were happy. We laughed a lot. We played Crazy Eights. We cooked food together. We traveled. We wrote. I'll talk more about things we did together, but I just wanted you guys to know because the last time I talked to you, I thought she had like strep throat. She thought she had strep throat. And we went immediately, she went immediately and got a COVID-19 test and it was negative. And she met with her doctor online and, you know, we treated it as strep throat, you know, and, and uh, on Thursday I said, we got, you know, we've got to go in. We've got, I don't know why this fever isn't going down. And she made an appointment to go in the next day. So we were going to go to the doctor for blood tests on Friday. And then in the middle of the night, I heard her collapse in the hallway on her way to the bathroom. And I got up and she was on the floor and she couldn't move. She was conscious but delirious a bit. I called 911. They came and they got her. And that was the last time I saw her alive was on the floor being taken away. Then over the course of the day, there was never any good news. She got there. She was anemic. She had low blood pressure. She had internal bleeding. And I don't want to go into details about that day, but they tried very hard at two hospitals that were amazing. And they eventually had to let her go. They tried everything they could. They took her off life support and she passed away. I called the ambulance at around five in the morning on Friday and by... 12.45 a.m. Saturday, she was gone. 
and I went over there. They let me into the hospital after she died to spend some time with her. And I did that. I told her I loved her. I touched her forehead. And I left. And now this process is happening. She was an amazing woman. She was an inspiration to so many people. So many people loved her. She was a very determined artist who just needed to put her expression out into the world in any way. Tremendous love for people, for her friends, for for her son, Milo. My relationship with her is, I, I can't even explain it. But I got to tell you, no one's got anything bad to say about Lynn Shelton. That's for fucking sure. She was amazing. Her movies were amazing. They are amazing. I've worked with her. Everyone who's worked with her loved her. And everybody's reaching out to me now, and it's really helping. And I'm so glad that, that Lynn was so well-loved because, you know, people are like, well, let's, you know, let's make sure that that, that guy's okay. <laughs> how's, how's the cranky guy doing? So this is what we do here at WTF, the podcast. When somebody uh, who has been on the show passes away, we repost the episode. We take it out from behind the paywall and repost it, not just you know out of respect or in memorial, but as a, a portrait of a person, a reminder, a, a reconnection with an artist a reminder of, of who they were when they were vital and alive and connected and expressing themselves and talking about who they were and how they expressed themselves. Just that audio portrait of that time. And I talked to Lynn. This the first time I met her was in 2015, August. August 10th is when it aired, 2015. I didn't know her, and, and she had been offered to be on the show before, but I was nervous because I knew she had some affiliation with my ex-wife, and I did not know if she was um, friends with my ex-wife or what that would mean, or I didn't know anything, but I needed to talk to her. I saw some of her movies. I wanted to talk to her. I was curious about her, so I said, okay, let's try it. Let's try it. I'm going to talk to this Lynn Shelton. I want to meet this Lynn Shelton, but I didn't know what to expect. You know, and at the time she was married and I was with somebody. But at this point, when I had this conversation, it's undeniable that we connected. I mean, my connection with her is almost seamless. There was, you know, I, I have no self-consciousness really when I'm with her. I'm, I'm totally comfortable even in my infantile ridiculousness. The whole arc of me, infantile ridiculousness to cranky shittiness. You know, I was just always better. I was definitely a better person when I was engaged with her as a comic, as a guitar player, as a human, as a lover, as everything. I was better in Lynn Shelton's gaze as an actor. And she was so great. But this is, you know, you can witness. You can bear witness to this. This is me meeting Lynn Shelton really for the first time 
in 2015. August. Enjoy it. You should enjoy it. You know, I shoot movies in seven and a half, ten. I like days. your movies. Do you? I do. Oh, I was hoping you might. No, I do, and I watched one this morning. Which one? Touchy Feely. Ah. I've seen like three. I think three. Uh-huh. Three. I didn't see the the Big Shot movie with big shots in it. Which, like now, now Lynn Shelton's a big shot. Hey, it was yeah. just uh, it was my. You know who was most excited and jealous who? about me doing a rom com with with Karen Knightley who? and Chloe Moretz? Joe Swanberg. He's like, uh, oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. I would love to do that. I would. You're gonna have so much fun. And I was like, I was worried. Am I selling out, man? Like, what? what are you doing? selling out? Whatever. You know. I no. I was really was like my opportunity. But is my, that, it's a question you asked though. You well, said sure, it. of course you I did. It. Well, I was wondering what it was the first movie I've ever directed mm-hmm. that I didn't write, and mm-hmm. I was like, is it gonna feel like one of my movies? You know, like what am I doing? It's sort of new territory. It's much bigger budget than I've worked with. Although, because I've done so much TV, I was comfortable with all the trailers and stuff but still you know it's like a different thing for my baby yeah. one of my babies and um he actually made me feel great you know he's like you can go back to doing your little shitty art things whatever like improv movies there but uh yeah this is gonna be great said the guy who has out. not done that yet exactly but who i think is dying to you know would you? Love to. oh yeah yeah absolutely he wants to try everything he he's a great guy Yes. He, he yeah. uh, we were in Chicago and we were taping my special at the Vic and Bobcat was directing it, Goldthwait. Mm-hmm. And we just called Joe. We, How many we, Bobcats are there, by the way? Yeah, I know. They're, I don't know. You know, you're from Seattle. You've been around. There, there might be a couple There's Bobcats. A couple. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Someone who I don't know, who you only know is Bobcat. All right. But, um, but no, we called Joe and we were like, we want to do some backstage shit, some inter- you know, some like, you know, just some stuff. Mm-hmm. Are you around? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll come down. So he was shooting. I'm both. Uh, he was just wandering around with me, awesome. being Joe Swanberg. Awesome. But okay, how do you differentiate then between like selling out and and just doing television? There's all the television you do, like uh, on the level of artistic and creative expression that you need for oh, yourself. Oh God, no, no. The TV directing is was always meant to be, uh, you know, a, a a way to pay the rent and the bills while I while I so give me the freedom that I can continue to make, you know, yeah. independent stuff here's the thing i love about television it keeps me on the set that's like i love being on set yeah i love directing mm-hmm. i love directing actors you do love i live for it that i it's my favorite thing working with actors well, it's fantastic and when i do my own movies i'm like you know my my for a lot while there i mean i made six movies in nine years yeah. and you know a 14 months between them that's not a long time in in sort of filmmaking, yeah. you know, that's a pretty in good filmmaking rate. years I mean, in director years. Swanberg, yeah. you know, yeah. Aside, well, he's making a movie in, while he's sleeping. <laughs> he's he's making a camera on. five movies at yeah. the same time. But um, th- but even so, that's a years over a year that I'm not on set, yeah, right? Yeah. So TV gets me on set, and as long as I'm really, really lucky, because I've worked on all these shows where people like each other and the work is fun and it's good and you know and i get to work with people that but i've made i had a revelation i think you'll appreciate okay maybe not no probably will i I like revelation i'm kind of obsessed with um a little bit with chopped this show (laughs) and uh, you're just coming into that i I kind of am i'm a little late late to the party and really yeah i mean you know the last whatever couple years or whatever yeah yeah but um i'll sort of binge watch it when i can and and uh i realized 
very recently. Oh my God, this is why I love television directing because it's like chopped. It's like I come in and I'm given my basket of ingredients. Yeah, you know? right. I got a script. Right. I'm just handed a script. <laughs> yeah. I'm handed a bunch of cast. Yeah. Here's a crew right. that you've never met. Right. You know, and a kitchen and you're not familiar a, with. A total. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I roll up my sleeves. I yeah. just got to make the best meal yeah. I can. You right. know. And it's really it, it. That really is it. It's invigorating and it's fun. But I'm not the, you know, I'm not the admiral of the fleet. I'm the captain of the ship because right. you know the writer is the king sure. in, in TV. And I got to say, you know, in Seattle, there's this great filmmaking community. Seattle is where I live, and there are a bunch of filmmakers, and all you know the crew that have crewed my films, and all the other filmmakers. Those are my buds. Like those are everybody that yeah I hang out with and I love. You never yeah. lived down here? No. Huh. I just, I just, uh, you know, come down in my little Kia Soul and yeah, spend some time working and then go back up. You're from Seattle. Yeah, raised you love in Seattle. Seattle. Really, 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 kind of obsessively love Seattle. Yeah, and I moved. spent time there. I know that place. Spent time. Yeah, I got an ex from there. Ah, you know really? my ex. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. And that that is makes me feel really dumb too because I worked with your ex for quite a while. Yeah. Um, only just recently, somebody pointed out to me that she was your ex. I had She's no idea. She's certainly not going to volunteer it. Nope, she do, didn't. And are I you making I don't a movie? Do, I don't do like deep googling. Yeah. It's uh, we have been in the throes of developing a film, and then um, and now she's kind of going back and you know reworking sort of the reworking script. It. Yeah, yeah. That's a good story. It's an amazing story. Yeah. And do you know that whole area? Did you grow up in that? Where'd you grow up? In I Seattle? felt I grew up in a very white part of town. Always, I moved around. Various. I mean, most of Seattle is very, very white. Um, what part? Uh, well, let's see. I was raised in, when I was in high school, I was living in Maple Leaf, uh-huh. um, and then Wedgwood. Yeah. And Ravenna. Yeah. So kind of Northwest. Did your old man work Northeast, for Boeing sorry. or something? No, no. Um, never had that connection. Um, my dad is a lawyer who yeah. then turned into a mediator. He's now been doing mediation, which is for people that want to leave each other. That kind of no, no, oh. no. Like like disputes between right. an insurance company and right, you right. know an aggrieved person or something like that. And, and it's a more diplomatic. It's nice. decent minded. It is, and practice. a lot cheaper. You yeah. know, it avoids a right. lot of. Yeah, it's great. It's mm-hmm. really, and he feels so like he's really, really good at it, and feels really good. At it. It's interesting. I didn't think that I had a real connection to what my parents do. Yeah. Um, until, you know, and then I realized, oh, actually, well, okay, that's like a people person thing and, you know, being yeah, able to yeah. collaborate and stuff. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, yeah. And then my mom. You sought that a, out? You retrofitted that? <laughs> oh, I'm, I am like him. I, <laughs> I, I work with many people and it's I'm just, diplomatic and. These and, revelations come to me a little, <laughs> I'm yeah, a little yeah. bit late. I, how am I their I don't child? Have the I don't need it. Exactly. <laughs> well, because there's no, you know, artsy fartsy stuff going on with them, but yeah. with, but his two brothers, uh, are one is a poet and one is a sculptor actually uh-huh. lives down here. So I always uh, identified strongly with them, you know, and my mom is the same way. She's got a uh, PhD in developmental psychology and ended up working in administrating um, early childhood education funds and all, you know, it all sounds very creative to me. It, you know, it is. And then the psychology thing, like those are my favorite classes in college because right. I want to know how people work and how they tick and well that's what know. I like about your movies is that you know you don't hit anybody over the head like they like I always end up crying for some reason touchy feely I was squirting out tears this morning oh at man the end. Well, the I can't even tell character. you what that means to me right really yeah, Josh Pice, man. Yeah, it's, it's like it's, it's at first you're like, what, is he you know, like uh, mentally challenged or infantile? <laughs> but then you realize it's just this weird kind of um, highly emotional but closed. It's hard yeah. to be 
closed off and highly emotional. As it turns out, yeah. But 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 he does it. Like he's an interesting actor. He's a really interesting actor. I mean, he's the kind of guy. If you start digging into his filmography, yeah. he tends to play these supporting character roles, yeah. and his range is insane. I, like I he's one sense. of those guys where you're like, oh, that guy. You know, like I exactly. knew I knew him, but I didn't know where from. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you find these. Um, like the the first time I I became really obsessed with him was uh, Mike White made this movie called The Year of the Dog with Molly Shannon starring. And Josh plays his her uh, boss. Yeah. And he just had this rhythm. He took all this time and he had, you know, Mike gave him all of this, all this room to be that, char- and, uh, that character. And I just was like, who is this guy? I was yeah. so obsessed with him. <laughs> you gotta use that guy. <laughs> yeah. And then we happened to meet, you know, in a green room somewhere and he... I sort of, I kind of gushed and gushed and gushed about him, and he was very, you know, he was very graceful. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, you know, and then it came out. My, I was with my editor, my amazing editor, Ned yeah. Sanders, and he dropped that I had edited, I had directed Hump Day, which Josh had just seen, and so he, you know, the tables returned, and he started gushing and gushing, and so it was like, well, we have to work together, you know, and then, uh, so I wrote that part for him specifically, and the other part for Rosemary Dewitt in Touchy Feeling. And you've used her a couple times. Yeah, she's Is also she like incredible. an alter ego kind of person? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, that film was uh, a film that... Touchy Feely? Touchy Feely was a film that was inside of me that I had to make because it, it was very it was a very personal film. I, I've never felt more vulnerable making a movie. Really? Um, yeah. What, well, where does something like that start? How do you move through those feelings and, and, and come up with that story? Why that story um, is, is was so close to you? Well, I wanted to do a bunch of things with that movie. I wanted yeah. to try to make a film with more than two or three people. I wanted right. to have ensemble. an ensemble. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to interweave stories, you know, have parallel editings, ed- editing where you go back and forth between different storylines. You'd never done that before? I hadn't done it in my own work. Uh-huh. I'd always followed a straight one straight linear story because you have more control or you were more comfortable with that it was just what i did yeah it was just what i had done so far it was the way you wrote yeah it was the way i thought i wrote the the narrative worked um for me and so that so touchy-feely was a way to do that and and to get out of the one location i mean i'd done a couple movies in a row three movies in a row actually because my effortless brilliance was my second movie and that was also which one in it it's called my effortless brilliance yeah it's on you know amazon and itunes and stuff so just so my very first, I've I've made six movies. My first one was like I wrote a script and I cast people and mostly all, in fact, all local actors in, in Seattle. Seattle. They were all theater actors and I had been in the theater. I'd, I'd been an actor. And so I just kind of like really made them, I wanted them to feel loved and even in the audition process, like, you know, I'd had, I'd had been traumatized by going to auditions and me being in felt, Seattle, feeling like shit. Yeah, yeah, in Seattle when I was young and still, and and then in New York, I moved to New York. Um, I was in New York in the nineties. All right, so maybe we should go back. All right, and load this up so we can get to Touchy Feely, the 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 most personal movie you've made. Yeah, instead of talk about it out of the gate. Okay, so you're a little kid in Seattle. Do you have siblings? Uh, I have a brother who's five years younger, and then when I was sixteen or seventeen, my dad married my stepmom. So I was eight. My folks got divorced mm-hmm. and ended up, it's one of those relationships, it's really hard for me to imagine them, them together. together. Right. Yeah. My, my mom and stepdad definitely Yeah, they're fit. good. My dad and stepmom So they found people fit. they love. One side totally introverted, the other side totally extroverted, yeah. you know. Very, but they were yeah. reasonably good raising you separately type I think of- so. You know, I. it's funny because um, I I have only very... 
I don't have any traumatizing memories of the divorce, but um, I sort of remember thinking growing up things like, oh, it will be very, it will be very interesting for me to be able to experience these two different environments. You know, mm, like yeah. I just sort of don't remember have, really having a problem with it. And that whole idea of, of p- kids, you know, feeling like, oh, it's their fault. Like I was like, why would you think it was your fault? It's nothing to do with you. You know, I was like, uh-huh. I didn't understand. So um, you knew that then. I thought at I, eight. That's what I, yeah, yes. that's what I remember being very mature Good. about it. Sure. And then in, and then in retrospect, I found out recently that I was, I was kind of a little shit. And when we moved into this new house or yeah. anyway, it was with a first time maybe that my my stepdad moved in with us i drew a map i don't remember this but i supposedly presented my parents my Uh my mom and stepdad with a map of where they were allowed in the house to kiss Uh you know this shit like that right you know and i get new guy with the new guy yeah and there my god i mean he was fairly self-protective and a decent boundary for an eight or nine year old i suppose but why wouldn't um, you be uncomfortable with your mom kissing some new guy on some level (laughs) i know It seemed to make perfect sense. I don't know that maybe you should give you, maybe it was empowered, not yeah. shitty. Yeah. That's how I'm going to spin it. But if you want to see yourself as a little shit, you could do that. Thank you. <laughs> they did end up with who they were supposed so was, to end up was with. Was your brother like a save the marriage kid? My brother, I think, you know, my mother told me that she um, just had a really hard time getting pregnant. So I was a love child. They were really young when they had yeah. me, um, got pregnant when they were both Oberlin college students. And That's I was really young. Grad dad's, school or undergrad? No, no, undergrad. I was oh my, my dad's God. 21st birthday present. Wow. My mom had just turned 22. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if they would have stayed together if right. it hadn't been for me, but they decided to make a go of it. And then my, my brother came along a few years later and and uh, and then, yeah, it all kind of went How's to shit. How's he doing? That was all for the best, though. He's great. He's a transportation planner also in Seattle um, with a couple kids. You know, we were so, I think we were far enough apart as we were growing up that we just Never felt. I never. I. I don't feel like I got really close with him yeah. until we became adults. That's good though. It's not. It's good now. You Which got, is fine. You got yeah. nieces and nephews and whatnot. Yeah. And yeah. you got kids. And then I got. I got one kid. And he's got a couple of of kids. So it's nice because I only and, have one. I only have the the only right. kid. And so it's nice that he has my kid. Milo has somebody to have a shared history with cousins and they get along yeah and i never had cousins town. the same town it's nice yeah. that's what people used to do yeah they don't have to live together but they can see each other enough generations they... are your folks still there yeah my folks are all there so my they got grandparents kids are yeah cousin, your husband's there. kids or your husband's got other kids no 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 no. his oh. his parents okay yeah my in-laws right but you grew up before the tech money came in so it was sort of like yeah. a, a like a like not that big a deal that city yeah, I mean, you want to take a look at what Seattle used to be. There's a great movie, Cinderella Liberty, with James Caan. It's a great movie. Oh, I love that movie. But it's sort of interesting, though, those 70s movies really, they they, they seem to be tonally um, appropriate for the Pacific Northwest, you know? Because, like, mm-hmm. even if you watch Five Easy Pieces right, on the, on the road, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, towards the end where he just gets on that truck, that that there's some dark, weird kind of thing. I, I have a, a, a real um, emotional... I don't even I can't identify the attraction to that. I spent two mm. years in Alaska as a kid. Oh, really? But the you feel like you're closer to the top of the world, and yeah. a, but not in a good way necessarily. Mm-hmm. There's sort of a foreboding. To it. There is there or is it yeah. me? No, you, I could totally. I see what you're. I, I mean, every time yeah. I even see Seattle, even looking at it in your movie mm-hmm. today, there's an intensity to it. Yeah, that, there's a resonance. Yeah, it, with the big trees and the rocks and yeah. the shoreline and all that shit. It yeah, just, and the and the skies. You yeah, know? gray. I mean, we have the most. It's gray, but it's not just a blanket. I remember really being surprised at how much I missed the skies in New York. I was there for you know almost a decade, and when really? it gets overcast, it's just like 
it's just like they have a lot of really ugly, flat, glary yeah, right, skies. Right. And Seattle, it's never like Huge. that. It's just like it's this beautiful texture, yeah. you know, shapes of yeah. all different colors of gray. Yeah. But also, uh, you know, other hues in there. That's I mean, what I feel like. It's the top of the world. Gorgeous. Like you feel like there's a weight to it all. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I But I, I, I feel it. And in this, well, and you also have that. It's almost like Scandinavia in that you get these super, super long nights. Yeah. In the winter, and then really long days in the summer, and it's it's I I'm, I spend like a you know I'll do I'll do a pilot I'll shoot a pilot or something down here I'm here for like a few weeks and I'm like, oh yeah it's not it's not like that down here like that right. you know it's much more even you know when you're yeah no it's yeah. bad. <laughs> it's like eventually you just don't like you don't even know time is passing and you're like where where's yeah. my life gone and the yeah the weather yeah, never and, changes yeah no it's, it's just, just you spend a lot of time in your car. And then one day you're like, wow, 10 years went by. Did I do anything? Let me look myself up. <laughs> so, all right. So you're this precocious uh, kid giving your parents, bossing them around in yeah, Seattle. But apparently, shit. apparently you're not a depressive. You don't seem to wear the weight of Seattle on well, you. Well, that's what Touchy Feely was actually dealing with. I did go through this period of depression about, Later? about five years ago. Five yeah, yeah. years ago. Well, I've had, you know, like I've had my little bouts. I mean, I remember... There were moments in college when I was curled up in a ball in the back of the closet. You know, I definitely have had these m- these moments in my life, but um, it got especially bad about yeah. The peak of it was about five six years ago. It was right around when I was making your sister sister. Oddly, so weird that I was as I was shooting it and as I was editing it, I, the whole time I was just kind of going, "Is this going to be likable? Like I can't tell if this is a good movie." That was your that was your, that was was your style of depression. Not like what's the point of doing any of this? No, no, I, it, was, I it was that I had that. It was I was quite a, it was it was very shameful for me because my work ever since I started making features, yeah. it was like, oh my god, this is what I was always meant to do. I right. sort of totally. And it was late in yeah, life. I was yeah. 39 when I made my first feature. Uh-huh. And so everything sort of came to me in a, um, I sort of self-actualized quite late in life. And, and me too. Felt it's, it's <laughs> late bloomers unite. I, I love it. Um, never thought, you know, always knew I was going to be an artist. Never thought in a million years I'd be able to make a living at it. Yeah. And I was fine with that. You know, I'd always part time teach. I'd part time edit. I'd whatever, you know, do to pay the bills and then just keep making my art. And yeah. then, I I have always been at my happiest and most deeply joyful right. when I'm making my work. Right? right. So here I am in the most one of the most beautiful places on earth, which is an island north of Seattle in the San Juan Islands. And which one? I promised not to tell, so I can't tell. Oh. This is the way we we able we're able to get access to that location was by not promising not to tell exactly where it was. Um and and with this unbelievable cast, Emily Blunt, Rosemary Duet, Mark Duplass, um, we have a great you know, I've written 80 pages of a, of a script that we're, you know, it's going to be a great film. I've got my favorite people, my crew up there. I mean, it was the whole thing was sort of perfect. perfect. Yeah. And I would literally wake up in the morning and be like, what, what's the point of this? Why are we doing this? I'm, oh, right. Making a movie. Why? I mean, it was. But it wasn't I, dread. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was close enough. It yeah. was really. It was bad, you know, and I, I felt so, sh- I felt so much shame about it hmm. because I was, it was such a mystery to me. I mean, it was like everything on paper is going so beautifully, right? Everything you have, every, your heart's desire and you can't feel the joy. I mean, it just drove me crazy. And that's what Touchy Feely really was, was about, you know, what is this thing that you can't talk about to anybody because it's so, it feels somehow there's this deep shame associated with it. 
and this mystery. But what, but you didn't, were you quick to sort of, even in exploring it, decide that it was founded in, like, cause in, in touchy feely, these are people that are not following their hearts or, or had gotten locked off from them somehow, yeah. as opposed to saying like, I have a chemical imbalance. I mean, right. Experiencing that weird feeling of, of, Emptiness at, when everything is going well is not that unusual for creative people. It's I know a it was new moment. for me. It was horrible um, but, because but, it was it was new. I wasn't used to it, and it was definitely chemical. But it was interesting because I came at it from this very, you know, like I've had I've had I had a, I recognized the feeling yeah. from the one day I was really f- lucky for many many years where I would have one black day a month. You know, mm. a day before my period or whatever, you know, it was like this sort of hormonal thing. Yeah. And my period would come and I'd go, Oh, great. That's what it was. Thank God. You know, it's amazing how, how some women <laughs> are surprised by that every fucking month. <laughs> every month. Every month. <laughs> There's something I'm like, wrong with me. What is wrong? Yeah, What's going yeah, on? And life then is horrible. Like, oh, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. God, you idiot. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have an irregular cycle, yeah. though it's hard. Anyway, but you know, I, I, I recognize that. So I was like, okay, this is clearly a hormonal thing. This is physiological. Right. Let's look, you know, at what to do. And I, I remember I was like, oh, you're not eating enough protein sure. and you need the right. amino acids to make the neurotransmitters. And, you know, and so I like did all this stuff and took my multivitamin, my B, you know, multi B complex, whatever. I did all that stuff and I was still having a problem. And I remember somebody telling me, you know, I don't think it's just physiological. You know, and really? it's just, and then I started exploring, you know, meditation and trying to like figure out other things to, you know, just yeah. kind of other ways in. Like and, massage, <laughs> like Reiki, Reiki, Reiki like actually, potions. I'd always wanted to do Reiki and that was my excuse was, oh, I have to do it uh, for um, research because I'm making this movie where there's going to be Reiki. And so I was able to finally explore that. But, but were yeah. you, were you dark when you made touchy feely i was i was still i was sort of coming out of it so i wasn't super in the it like the peak of it really was your sister sister and then you know only after i'd actually finished completing making it was i able to say oh i really love this movie <laughs> i'm really proud of it you know i it was sort it's of it was you, almost we like did the work well yeah it was almost like i realized i heard somebody talking about postpartum depression once and she talked about how she sees this beautiful baby. You know, she saw it mm-hmm. after it was born and was like understood objectively yeah. that it was a lovable being and that right. she should love it. And it was lovable and couldn't just couldn't feel that connection to it. It was very much like that for me with that film where um, and then only later was I able to actually. But not with your kid. My kid, I didn't have postpartum depression. I loved him right away. That's good. Yeah. Well, I noticed though also in, um, in Touchy Feely because it's fresh in my head that, you know, the those weird um kind of intense close-up shots of skin mm-hmm. and then there was another shot when she was kind of tripping of um b- you know concrete breaking down mm-hmm. and that that it struck me as this sort of realization of temporal you know that everything's sort of temporary and decay and and mm-hmm. and, and and life and what does it mean yeah, and the connection. Did I read into that? You, no, not at all. And the connection. I was trying to draw a connection between the cracks and the concrete and the cracks. You know, yeah, I got it. Super close up cracks. That the you only see two close ups. Delivered yeah. message. Yeah. Delivered. <laughs> Thank you. But, <laughs> but, the, but yeah, she's you know she's not twenty. You know, and there's a reason that character isn't isn't twenty. And and what was going on for that character, Rosemary Dewitt's character in Touchy Feely, is that 
the my my concept with her was that she had been in a relationship that hadn't been so it's, you know she's sort of been suppressing her own identity and her own fulfillment you know mm-hmm. in her twenties yeah into her thirties and then was entered pretty, the healing arts pretty newly which is what they do well she gets she gets out of the you know, right. she gets divorced and and goes you know changes hits the reset button at thirty six or whatever right and goes in massage school and just a, puts this on a whole new life by the this way. is backstory she you know goes out with guys who are younger she's supposed to the the guy she's with Scoot McNary is uh you know younger dude somebody who doesn't have all the cares of the world you know maybe her old her right. ex was like a insurance agent sure. or something whatever she sort of had you know he was who her parents would have approved of and and this is somebody they wouldn't approve she's of just working if they some were stuff still out in. yeah and so she's really like she's found this she's going through her own sexual revolution like she's really and she feels like yeah you know i'm doing it i've got a thirst for life and mm. But this depression that comes on is really like her soul knocking. Mm-hmm. It's right. like, oh, not biological. You're not this. All this, like, you know, living life and screwing your boyfriend in right. your brother's bathroom and right. you know, yeah. <laughs> trying to be a rebel. Like, it's really not what it's all about. Like, there's other other shit that needs to be attended to, you know. And so it was. It's sort of like it's a ba- it's a it's a weird feeling at a certain age where you realize that you know through habit and fear that you are disconnected from something. Yeah. <laughs> why but let me ask you this yeah. why uh because i have I, I there's another interesting part of the movie that i want to know if you thought of it mm-hmm. that why a dentist oh um you know i think it was honestly a holdover because josh and i had been that actor and i had been talking for a couple years about uh about I had been throwing around ideas, and for a while we actually were on the road of making another film, and his the character was going to be a dentist. Yeah, and so we had talked a lot about who this guy might be, and you know, it, it was it was this funny idea where he was actually going to end up becoming a cult leader, and so this is like a little bit of a a, a reformation of this character we'd already been right. talking about, right? And I can't remember who brought it up because we really were going back and forth about what the occupation would be, and. He might have come up with dentist, or, or I might have. I can't remember. But you know what's interesting about it? Things. Like I've talked about this with one other person whose father mm-hmm. was a dentist. But there was a passage in I think John Updike's um, Couples, mm-hmm. and and it's about a dentist. One of the characters in it is a dentist, and there's this whole passage about how the immediacy and, and relentless nature of decay is something that dentists have to deal with every day over and over again the the sort of the you know, that's what you're fighting wow like that that like you see it in the mouths every day that this 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 decay yeah that and it, it always struck me as a very sort of weird existential uh, wow. um realization i i tried to get it out of my friend whose dad was a dentist but he just wouldn't have it but <laughs> but but i think you know metaphorically or symbolically there's something about within the movie that works like that so if you wanted to say you were aware of that from here on out I will I'm stealing that (laughs) I do that all the time by the way because I just I make films on this very gut level of, but, you know, doesn't you know, that read, and then though? People, doesn't that read? Oh, totally. Totally scans and the other thing I think somebody else probably pointed out to me as well was the intimacy of you know I mean it's for both of their occupations they have these incredibly intimate acts with strangers sure you know, here open she is. Open your with mouth. This, and then open your mouth. I'm <laughs> yeah, coming in. Yeah. It's incredibly intimate. Uh, yeah. And yet, you know, there's this issue with a real connection. Intimacy. Right? Yeah. Intimacy. The trust yeah. and all that. And you just, so talking about intimacy, you just reminded me, 
even though we're not, we haven't, we've sort of skipped ahead somehow again. You did it. Very nonlinear. Sorry. You did it. That's the way my brain works. No, it doesn't. We just established that your brain works linearly. (laughs) Linearly. 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 Oh, I can't do it. (laughs) Um, I, the way I got through the vulnerability that I felt in making that movie was coming to my, both my crew and my cast and saying, I'm, I'm like laid bare made it making this thing and uh what about your husband what about my husband what about didn't you does he enter the equation when you're all sad and laid bare with your crew i mean (laughs) did you did you hip him to the issues yeah yeah sure yeah no absolutely he's totally but he's on board he gets it he's on the same page but he's not on set with me you know what does he do so, uh, he is, uh, right now he's making furniture in his, in our garage. Mm-hmm. Um, and wood, wood furniture, yeah, working the surfaces. Gorgeous. It's not a large garage, so he's able to make like coffee tables. Oh. And I th- although I think he's going to make a bed frame and like, and then assemble it elsewhere. With, uh, with, uh, but, uh found wood, with wood from salvaged barns and things. Sometimes. That, he's good with the surfaces and the finishes and he the. He is. Uh, he had a really interesting, you know, we've been together forever and it's since you were a kid uh well i would consider my that age at the time to be a kid i think i was we i started we started living together when i was 24 and he and then got married at 28 Hmm. and that was that's pretty good time ago yeah but that's four years it it, it seemed like you meant it oh yeah (laughs) you you were in you didn't get married 10 years in but the changes that we've gone through at the time Mm. He was, he had been plucked. His original plan was to get an engineering degree and be an industrial designer, but then he got sort of plucked from the masses and he became an MTV VJ. And, uh, which one? Kevin Seal is his name. He was on from like 89 to 90, no, 87 to 91. Right. Um, and he, you, you uh, met we have him a friend in New York? who, uh, no, no, he actually is from Seattle too. So we were, um, we yeah. knew each other there and then I kind of followed him out. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, yeah, I'm going to work in the theater. I'm going to be an actress in the theater. And then it was like, and I'm going to also figure out what the hell's going on between me and this guy. So he was able to then after parlay that into like voiceover talent, kind of corporate yeah. commercial right. stuff. Yeah. And we and I dragged him back to Seattle when I was quite pregnant, and there just isn't enough work of that sort yeah, so to now make a living. You, so he went to industrial garage. design school, and now he's in the in the, now garage. He's in the garage. And he worked in a real ch- actual shop, getting paid good money. But then when I got really busy in my career, he his that place he was working kind of. Went downhill, went bankrupt, actually. And so when he was looking around for a new job, yeah. it was he realized, we realized the most important job you could be doing, actually, is taking care of our kid who's deaf and who needs, you know, is like, was mm-hmm. going to a lot of different, you know, driving him to the special school. and Right. So, yeah, it turns out he's a much better full-time parent than I am. Great. And, uh, yeah, it suits him. They're like That's best nice. friends. Yeah, it's great. It's yeah. so great. So I can leave without feeling, you know, like, like I know the... You know what you're doing? Here's the list. fires are burning. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right, yeah. Right, I don't right, know. right. He's the one the numbers. The <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you tell your crew that you're laid bare. Yeah. So open. I remember the first day we did a we did a table read of this script that I'd written, mm. and there were parts of it that I... Um, I was like, I just want to skip over this part because it just made me feel like I felt like I was going to vomit, you know. Really? And then I was like, No, Lynn, it's okay. Like we're going to do it, you know. And it, I don't know. It was, it was, and I just was really honest. I said, Look, this, I, the revelation I had during this in a very deep way. Which part? Uh, the part where she describes um, losing her virginity. Right. Which is kind of in the house from with the Livingston. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of just right out of you. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Made me feel 
pretty, yeah. So you were seeking closure with this script in a way. Yeah. I in was, some weird way. I was a movie that I was like, okay, I gave myself permission to make a movie that was not going to be accessible or commercial or, you know, um, uh, one of the reasons that I was the editor was that I started as an editor and I wanted to see if I could still do it. But also I, I didn't want to, I didn't, but, I couldn't. But it's interesting. You would think that because it's got like three happy endings. <laughs> yeah, but the places it goes and the people at it, you know, it's hard to make a compelling narrative with, with really passive, aggressive or just passive, you know, closed off people. It's, it's just, and it wasn't everybody, but half of but the that, cast. But that's like, that's sort of a question of, of, you know, something you brought up earlier, which is on my mind. Cause I saw mm-hmm. uh, Annie Baker play in New York. I saw the flick, mm-hmm. this idea of space mm-hmm. and not over explaining. Yeah. And, and finding the truth in emotion in, you know, in space yeah between people yeah you're aware of that so aware of that so interested (laughs) in that so interested in not over spelling everything out like you know i just gave you a rundown on the backstory of this character like that's just a taste of the incredible you know up the wazoo backstory we have for everybody in every relationship but that's your relationship with actors you give it is but it's really important for me to to have them have these really a really clear sense of who they are so that when you know the the chemistry between them is palpable, or the ba- or the te- tensions from the past is is right there, and you can feel it. I don't want the audience to know all that crap. They don't have to know all that shit. Something you know, like they get a touch, a, a little but bits and pieces. It's fine. But for me, it's all about creating that. When do you reality. tell them that? Oh, it's months. We're we're usually or before four weeks before shooting. Yeah, there's a lot of you talking. sit down with all of them. Yeah, or or a lot of phone. I'm up in Seattle, so right. I'm on the phone with them a lot. I mean, but like your sister sisters are a great example. I mean, I developed those characters with Mark and Emily, and it was actually another actress before Rose like. But the script in and is a script. But before. I do it. In, I do it in a kind of upside down. Play. No, I do it in an upside down way, where I'm I'm sort of developing the script alongside the development of the characters mm-hmm. because I want to know who the characters are. I have to know who the characters are before I can believably. Um, you know, write what they would believably do in a scene, uh-huh. how what they would say, how they would act. And the more you know about the characters, the easier it is to write what they would do. Because it's like you're then you can just sort of improvise the scene out in your head because you know who they are. Right. But, you know, I don't like to throw people into an improv situation when they I don't have any of that stuff. Right. You know, they're just like, which and then it's lot, like a little song, you know, it's which like a, a lot of people do. Soft shooting. Yeah. And that, it drives that, me. I couldn't. Yeah. Because I would think that most people that do those kind of movies where it's loose like that, mm-hmm. um, they don't get that type of backstory. They don't get type, that type of direction and you can sort of feel it. Yeah. And, I mean, and, I, I feel like I can. Yeah. Yeah. And also like, I don't think that all, you know, that's a unique thing for a director to do to put that much collaboration and, 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 uh, time into making these characters come to life. Most people I, I've talked to or, or I've seen, they, there's a trust with the actor to just do his job. Right. Exactly. And, and I don't know that that's always good. It's less fun for me, too. Because, yeah. again, my favorite thing about making movies is working with actors. So the more excuse I have to get in there with them and figure that stuff out. But, again, it's going to feed the narrative. But is that because for me. do you see yourself as a failed actress? No. Good. Not at all. Well, you wanted to be an actor. I when I was an actor, I mean, I started taking class. I was very serious in my, you know, I started when I was like eleven, taking classes and doing 
whatever. That's whenever when it started? I could do. That was when it started. I took a how to be a clown class. You did? Yeah. And I was, I was do you remember super any of that? shy. Oh, yeah. What I remember is that it, the, the liberation of putting literally, you know, like, I mean, it was, a, it was makeup, but it was a mask. And yeah. It was like, right. you know, white face and, uh, and walking around Seattle Center on my stilts. And interacting with people at eleven in a way, yeah, You're that I never—that was like our graduation yeah. or whatever. I, it was a way that you know, yeah, they were like this high mm. um, that I never could have done in real life. And so it was this outlet it was a way for me to interact with people. And there were there were two things that I did, um, like safe ways that I found to interact with other humans and connect with other humans. It was through you know being I could be somebody else completely utterly on a stage and mm-hmm. make that connection with an audience and with other actors on the stage you know that was just like buzzy stuff it was amazing and then there was also photography so in high school again super i was i was in this um brief period of mandatory busing so even though i grew up in white neighborhoods the reason i connected so strongly to um, mishnas mishnas i'm down is yeah. that i was bused to yeah uh from sixth grade through high school to the central district where the african-american community was yeah. and that was it was a very um uh, it, the the culture was very African American of those schools that I went right. to, and middle school through high school, and so I went to the same high school. You know, Jimi Hendrix went to, and Quincy Jones and Garfield High School, and and you were a dark room rat, and I was a dark room rat, and I remember uh, I would hide behind my telephoto lens of my Pentax two thousand, and I would like K one thousand, and I would uh, and I would find these ways in. You know, I would have captured these intimate moments mm-hmm. of vulnerability, you know, yeah. across the gym yeah. with some guy, you know, and so it was, it was the safe place to be, but I was still looking, always looking for connection. Like we always are. Right? Yeah. Um, but between that and then the acting, which enabled me to just like become somebody else and not worry. And I was very self-conscious, you know, that's um, interesting though, that, that the photography was the outlet. I did photography in high school yeah. and I, I didn't, I didn't think about it the same way. Mm-hmm. Because it's not really connecting. It's almost like no, stealing. You're moments. stealing and you're observing. Yeah. You know, but you're the freak with the camera. But There's I that girl still with the camera. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. I still felt connected. I felt weirdly connected when you can find these moments of vulnerability, you know, unguarded moments. You feel like, oh, I they're not so sure. scary. Sure. They are somebody I could, you know, maybe I could have a conversation with someday or whatever. You right. Know? And um, yeah, so that was a really important thing for me tool for me developmentally i think um and it's very odd though to see someone like sometimes when i overhear conversations uh that you know are charged Mm -hmm. you know i feel like i'm i'm in violation of something like because for sure you know why i kind of stopped making docs because i was i did documentaries for a Uh long time and and that it yeah that's a uncomfortable zone for me you know where you're you're sort of um maybe you're shooting something that you that the person doesn't even realize that they're yeah. exposing themselves in some right. way or the way you present it. It's like, ah, oh, it makes me right. nervous, you know? Um, right, so, so there you are, exciting, you're, doing the, you're so doing the photographs the failed, and you're acting. The failed actress thing. So I move, I get a BA in drama, school of drama, at the school of drama. It's actually for a year, I was at Overland for a year wait, and then wait, went to the University of Washington. But well, It's yeah. interesting because of what you're saying, because I talked to uh, Sir Ian McKellen in here. Oh my God. But he, because it was interesting that what we came upon and whether he did it on my show or not for the first time was that because he was so heavily closeted culturally as a gay man at the time he was um, coming up mm-hmm. that he identifies you know Shakespeare and acting as a way to to have the emotions that uh, people in relationships that they weren't didn't oh have God. to be culturally ashamed of wow. to have them wow 
See, I thought that was kind of it is. It's like it's this conduit for stuff that I mean, yeah. I found it, you know, to be extremely therapeutic, you know, to yeah. be able to do. And then when I moved to New York after after college, you went to first Oberlin. I went to I went to Oberlin for a year in um, the acting program. The very first in acting and also creative writing, I was I I had always I was a poet too. So it was actually my very I, first I was too. art form. I, you know, I feel like yeah. we have a lot in common. Yeah. Yeah, I'll show I you some so. of my poems maybe. Awesome. I have only two or three that, <laughs> that, that, I, that I'm proud of. So. I, yeah. I occasionally I, write a poem now. I love poems. I, w- I wish I wrote. poems? I do. And really? I wish you I read wrote poetry? more. It's one of the things, like I just went through and called a whole yeah. bunch of books realizing, okay, this is ridiculous. Like right. I don't need, and I, I couldn't give a single poetry book away. It was like, uh, no. Those no, they seem special. Absolutely. You should yeah. always have as much poetry in the house as possible. But yeah, so I, I went for creative writing. Uh, I got a really bad experience where I found out later that the guy hadn't even read my samples, but I was dying for, I'd been writing all through poetry. I mean, sorry, all what? through high school. And I really wanted some feedback and the direct, the, the poetry teacher basically said, you know, you can't, you, you know, you, I'd never let freshmen in for a reason, but it was, he kind of dismissed my poems. And I found out later he didn't even read the ones that I'd submitted. How'd you find to that out? Um, I can't remember some inside way. It was, uh, it, and then I stopped writing because of that for like a really long time. It was so dumb. But yeah, I had a hard time. Uh, anyway, so I, 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 I was an actor. You well, had a hard time. What, <laughs> what happened? Adolescence kind of was uh, did a number on me, which How? it does a lot for, Be- because for a lot you didn't of fit in, young or? women. Oh, okay. No, there's this book called Reviving Ophelia. Do you know about this book? No. It was it was a huge. Boy, I talk about so many revelations on this show. It's a little embarrassing, but I was writing the script of my first uh, feature, which is really about the way that we are different selves in different points in our lives. Mm-hmm. And the, the pre and post adolescent selves mm. were something I was looking back on and was like, wow, that was fascinating. Cause those were like polar opposite kind of personalities. When I was in my late thirties, I was looking back at that. And, and then I was telling a friend about this script I was writing and she said, well, you got to read this book. And it was like, Oh, I wasn't the only one. Like there's this thing that happens when you become sexualized for some, some girls, some women, a lot of them, mm-hmm. um, where I was, I just felt like I was, the you know peak the top of my game when i was like 12 13 and yeah. i was writing stories writing poetry painting Confident. playing music doing yeah acting doing all this stuff mm-hmm. and taking photographs and um had such a clarity of vision and a confidence in my voice and yeah. you know and then yeah cut to like 20 i just what, I, but was, what about 14 15 16? well it was like a gradual grinding down okay. i think you know yeah. and it wasn't anything to do with my folks my it was always told by both of them you can do whatever you want you can be whoever you want you sure. can be present sure. you can be an artist but it was want. about the culture of high school very and- feminist and it was just it was society really you know and this kind of become like i i got really big boobs and yeah. i was i very like people were i felt and i already had the tendency to be sort of self-conscious no that wasn't i don't think i did i was very androgynous and tomboy before then I felt sort of betrayed by my body and yeah, like, right. what the fuck, you yeah, know, that right. isn't who I am. And, right. and it felt like that was the first thing no- people, everybody noticed about me, even though I don't know if it was or not. And I yeah. started wearing tents and, and then it got into this whole thing like, you know, oh, are you looking at me? Don't look at me. You know, right. look at me. Look at, you know, like that whole, like, yeah, look at me, yeah. don't look at me, look at me. That's a kind of a, a thing that happens as well, I think. And then just the sexual charge, I think, of high school for sure. But yeah, I don't know. It just really... Something about that really kind of ground out my sense of agency. And so there was really a period of time when all I really could do was act because somebody else was telling me, it was like I was a puppet. I was saying what other people told and, me to and say. And all this weird yeah. attention and self-consciousness diminished your confidence and creativity. 
It did. And so I felt like there was this trickle. You know, I didn't start directing feature films until I was 39 for a reason. I don't think I was capable of it back then. And I needed to shed some of that self-consciousness and gain a sense of maturity and a sense of authority. It's it's funny. I have an ex from years ago who actually lives in Seattle. She's a sculptor. And uh, when I met her in Boston, she's a real tough Jersey girl. And she used to bartend at a strip joint. But she wasn't a stripper. It Mm -hmm. was not her bag. And uh, and uh she quit. And, and I said, why did she quit? And she said, I got tired of men looking at me like I was meat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess it gets a little boring. But I but women, I knew so many women who could who could. Mm-hmm. I remember this woman who was I mean, women who just relish sure. their bodies and, yeah. you know, and I remember, you know, small class and people. And I was just like, I was so horrified right. by my body. I was just really, I don't know what it was. It just, for me, it was really and tough then, but why the, to get over. And why the writing uh, go away as a form of expression? Just because that idiot shut you down, basically? I think a little bit because the idiot shut me down and because I just sort of didn't have as much to say. I didn't feel like I had anything to say or what I was You couldn't had process to say what we're talking about now. Not at all. Yeah. Because you weren't aware of it really. Exactly. Right. I was in it. You know, I was too close to it. Yeah. So acting became the thing. So acting became the thing. Yeah. And it was a little bit my, you know, again, my sort of secret shame that, well, because it's really the only thing I can do right now. Like, I have to be an artist. I always knew I wanted to be an artist. Yeah. But, you know, this was sort of, it was down, it was down to this. So, like, this was all I could do. And then when I moved to New York to do it, it wasn't... It was uh, when I started trying to make a living at it. It just it was like, oh, this sucks, you know. So you did a year at Oberlin. A year at Oberlin. And then you go to New York and go where? No, no, I was at the School of Visual. I was. Uh, I'm sorry, I was at the School of Drama. I got a degree in like, a BA in drama at University of Washington. Then I moved to New York. So, um, oh, so you went back home after Oberlin. Oberlin for and then you yeah. went to New York with a degree in drama. Yeah. To be an actress on Broadway. Yeah, although not Broadway. I wanted to be at the New York Theater workshop uh-huh. where they were doing Carol Churchill plays and I saw my friend Garrett Dillahunt in Mad Forest and I was like oh my god this is it that's uh-huh. what I want that's what I want and then I found out how much those actors made and that there was no way they could possibly pay the rent on that on ever. my dream job sure. ever yeah. and I was like what the how do you I don't get how, how, is how it? what is this it sucks so you know? how long were you in New York I was there for nine and a half years. So you stuck with it? No, I didn't. So oh. what I did was after a couple years of doing a lot of, and I, I did a lot of fun, cool downtown yeah. stuff. And then, and then really turn, and it was, it had always been an addiction. Like I, you know, that was really what it felt like. I was like, ah, I have to be in a show. What's coming up next? I got to be in a show. And I really transferred my addiction to the dark room. That was when I got, became really serious about photography. So at the International in Center New of York. Photography in New York, I started really? taking classes and like, yeah, and then built up enough of a body of work to get into grad school, school of visual arts. I went to the for um, photography for photography. So my MFA was in photography and so related like a, media. You got it. You like the chemistry of it all and the light and the process. Yeah, and being behind, were, and being the looker and not the looked at was but, much healthier for and me. And it was also a time where you had to know your chemicals and your papers and your oh, yeah. films and your stocks. Yeah, although it wasn't a super nerd out like what I loved about and luckily I mean I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if it weren't for the case that this was not a fine print it wasn't all about the fine print like I almost applied to Yale but that was really all about getting the perfect dark but it wasn't room digital. technique it was starting digital was starting right. and that's why it was called an MFA in photography and related media because uh-huh. they were just starting to right. to learn but and you knew how to you knew your way around the dark room I did for sure and yeah. my and I was going in doing you know the Vivian Mayer, Meyer, I mm-hmm. always forget how to say her name, um, style photographs, Helen Levitt, Robin Frank. That was how I was started with street photography, black and white street photography. But then by the time I got out, I was doing, I was like, I was somewhere straddling the line, I didn't really know, between video art and experimental film because I was able to take 
those classes. And so I started by making these little, I started in filmmaking by making these little handcrafted movies that I did everything myself. And I was like shooting on Super 8 and then blacking out my bathroom and cracking it up with a hammer and hand developing and getting, you know, solarizing it and just doing, you know, really experimenting. It was pure self-expression. I wasn't trying, I wasn't thinking about an audience. I was really wanted to be a serious artist. So you're doing like, you know, working the surface of the film and all that shit. And Yeah, but also exploring other things. Peggy Awesh was a, my thesis advisor. Uh-huh. And, um, and so like, my, who was she at? It hit me to her. She's, uh, she was sort of the super eight film experimental film queen of the eighties. Mm-hmm. Did all kinds of really groovy. And she was your, stuff. she was your mentor. Yeah. At you that could, time. they wanted, they encouraged you or they required you to find an art, a working artist that you admired to yeah. be your thesis advisor as opposed right. to somebody on the staff. Yeah. It was great. And so I saw all of her work and she introduced me to a whole bunch of other experimental filmmakers. And, um, and at the time, you know, I was also like going to see Bill Viola and Gary Hill and all these people. And so, um, that was all kind of, I was looking for, you know, I was doing all my sh- own sound design and shooting and figuring out what doing VHS resonated stuff with me. Too, like that yeah. And I would like, well, like I did VHS, but I also, so I was exploring, um, like my first film was called white and I just gotten married and it was, I was sort of uncomfortable with that sort of reckoning with the idea of entering the institution of marriage, which I had a troubled, you know, kind sure. of, and so I was sort of, I <laughs> uh, made my husband dress up and I sort of wrapped him in this white, paper white um, wedding dress and had him you know swan around the roof of our apartment building and then shot it and then slowed it down and then rescanned it and i was just you know i was just fucking around i was just trying to figure out stuff yeah but 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 (laughs) but but the interesting thing is is in your story that you know i don't always hear Mm -hmm. which is that you know you were committed to art totally and and at some point you you must have realized that how obscure that would be yeah. as a life. I did. And it and- was, it was, it wasn't even, it was the, it was, so I, I, there was a transition period. I came out of school. Digital editing was my marketable skill and I was able to freelance edit. And then on the side, I would, I would build up and, and part-time teach other people how to, how to digital edit. And then I would take that money and I would go make these little movies. And in the meantime, like I, I started, there was a topic that I really wanted. Like my second feature film was about, was this experimental documentary about the relationship between women and their body hair. So you can see the kind of stuff I was like futzing around but, with. Right, and my but, thesis film was like, you know, ex- looking at different levels of consciousness. <laughs> but finally, there was this one piece that I wanted to make. This is what I'm trying to get at. Is there was a, a, a topic I wanted to actually have an audience. I wanted people to see it and I wanted them to get it and I wanted it to be accessible. And that was kind of a bridge okay, for me. Right. So, so it that, wasn't, it wasn't like I got to make a living, no. but uh, it was more about like, you know, refining your art to a bigger audience. Cause it, yeah. cause when you're doing, you know, real experimental art, whether it's theater or film or whatever, and you really start to talk to people who yeah. are teaching, mm-hmm. you realize like, well, you know, if I don't make the, the textbooks or the magazines, there's really no future in this at all. That that it's mm-hmm. such a small community. Yeah, and that was okay with me. Like right. I, I really it wasn't like, oh, I have to be Bill Viola and get big gallery shows. Right. I just wanted to be true to myself as an artist. Right, okay. And so. make stuff that nobody else could make and to explore territory that was really interesting to me. But it wasn't until and I almost had to kind of give myself permission to make work that would 
that would reach people. Right. You know, it was almost sure. again, it was like a selling out thing. Like, oh, God, are you selling? The you worst. know, they, it's right? like we we <laughs> how every every creative person does that to themselves. The self sabotage. Well, I don't know if it's self sabotage. Well, it's not in my comfort zone. Right. I well, have to be obscure. It's an integrity thing. Like, integrity. It's, yeah. It, it's it's sort of like you know the idea when you're younger is that that you don't want to take the easy way, but as you realize as you get older that mainstream there's nothing easy about it, and yeah. and you know. But serving yourself was more important, you know, mm-hmm. even if you were fucking your life up. <laughs> right. And I was happy to, I mean, I, I tempted and was a, you know, secret, personal secretary or whatever up until throughout my 20s and so then th- said, okay, at 30, I can't do that anymore. And really like made a, you know. But the portal in was about body hair. <laughs> that was your, that no, was your. No, the one that I wanted people to see was a couple, a few films later. It was. But that's when you expar- obviously started experimenting with, with, um, documentary and mm-hmm. your own, you know, uh, body issues and, yeah. uh, more, uh, feminine, you know, yeah. if not feminist driven stuff. Yeah. Uh, identifying. I was pretty that feminist. Way. I mean, it was definitely about trying to dismantle, showing the construction of gender, like uh, basically sort of pointing at how much effort goes into making these smooth veneers of a feminine image on, you know, in a fashion right. magazine or whatever. Like, okay, yeah. Oh, that just seems like that's so womanly. So the, well, actually, right. it takes a fuck of a lot of work to make it look right. like and, that, you and, know. And, and so, that's accessible. Yeah. Well, that's way. true. Yeah. yeah. But uh, the movie wasn't because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So it looks okay. And the interviews are great. But mm-hmm. like the sound quality is shitty. I mean, I was just like, right. really just sort of trying stuff out. So, um, but the film that I really wanted, like I, I wanted it to be on that POV series on PBS. Yeah. It, I don't know if you ever watched documentaries on that series, but, um, I saw a bunch, I was inspired by that. And then I, I had this movie that I wanted to make about miscarriage because mm. I was trying to get pregnant for years and years and then had a miscarriage on the way to that, uh, in that journey. And, um, and I felt so like, um, uh, so, what is it? Blindsided. I didn't by feel like by the miscarriage. I felt I'd it'd been so hard to get pregnant that I really thought once I was pregnant, I felt like, oh, I'm in a state of grace. Like right. this is sure. amazing. This is magical. And then 20 weeks down the line, because it was a late miscarriage too, um, you know, I was cramping up and it's like, well, I mean, that's miscarriages for other people. <laughs> right. It's not for me, you know, this is, this is a special yeah. pregnancy. You don't yeah. understand. Like right. I earned this pregnancy. So I was really, 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 um, yeah, blindsided by it and really just, it wasn't even in my, and then once I had one, all these people came out of the woodwork. It turned out I knew tons of people who had had miscarriage and I had no, I had no idea. And it's like a secret society, you know, the secret sisterhood. And so many people either, made you feel crazy by not acknowledging it at all, even though they had just days before been saying, how's the baby? You know, whatever. And then they didn't even acknowledge it because they were so uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. It's like when your father dies, people know to send you flowers. Like right. they, there's a way to deal with it, but right. people don't know what to say to someone who's had a miscarriage. And so they either say terrible devastated. things. Oh, I was really devastated. It was really hard. And I know yeah. not everybody is, but for me, you know, I'd been trying to get pregnant so hard and it was awful. And the best thing anybody ever said to me was, I'm sorry you lost your baby. And that's all I needed to hear. Right. But people would be like, oh, it was, you know, you probably, you wouldn't have wanted to have a baby with a problem or whatever. Just like really sure, insensitive yeah. things. You know, it's God way, God's way of whatever. I don't know. Just Well, that's how people protect soon. themselves from um, just Uncomfortable even, discomfort. Yeah, and shouldering what they should be able to. Like, you know, yeah. you know, a lot of times you just have to let somebody feel. I know it's hard for people. No, so I no, wanted no. to kind of, you yeah, know, yeah, I wanted no. to explore that and help people feel not so alone who've right. gone through it and also to and educate people. And this, this was a, a full length documentary. No, it was only, it was going to be a half hour because POV showed half hour. Right. So I made it specifically for that. Yeah. But it was the, really the first time I ever thought about 
an audience and who am I trying to talk to and 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 can I stay and the whole it was I interviewed people just audio mm-hmm. and then I made this beautiful um, visual landscapes mm-hmm. or poetic oh okay so it wasn't actually it. filmed interviews right which I, and so that was kind of my way of saying yeah you're still being you're still having integrity right. with your visual aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like a really, it was like, it was like a radio documentary. This is almost accessible, but let's stop yeah. it there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Don't go if too far now. Don't if, go crazy. If this were a radio show, it'd be very accessible, but it's not. It's people talking against some poetic visual stimulation. <laughs> exactly. Well, the idea was that visual yeah. beauty would help them swallow the pill of this, dis- you know, uncomfortable topic. But, well, that, but then that anyway. also speaks to your inability or, or your desire to connect that you were clearly not ready to do visually in the way of, of letting people talk on the camera. Well, no, it hits people on a visceral level okay. because cinematic language can be really, you know, the associative imagery actually was. And it was a way to get people to open up because they didn't want to talk about this thing unless it was. And it made them feel safer to not be on camera. You know, were you doing acting jobs at this time? No, I think I was pretty much beyond mm. after I went to grad school. Okay, I just was, you know, I think. Although I did, I did actually in grad, in the middle of grad school, I was, um, I went on tour with the Five Lesbian Brothers, um, as an and I was like, but I'm not a lesbian. And they were like, you'll be, on, you're an honorary lesbian. Honorary lesbian. Yeah, was <laughs> so sweet of them. Uh-huh. Um, so I did do a little. I'm still doing a little trickle here and there. Or I would do, you know, my friend Madeline Olnek, who now is a filmmaker as well, was writing plays, and I would occasionally do something with her. But, um, yeah, I wasn't a pursuing it and auditioning and stuff. That was all left in the dust. And the thing that was so beautiful when I made my first feature, I edited a couple features. When we moved back to Seattle, I was hired as an editor. And that, that was when, when I edited my first feature. Um, and called, you were just hired. Outpatient. I was just hired. That was your marketable skill. As it you was said. my marketable yeah. skill. And because I was in a smaller market, I didn't have to go through years of being an assistant editor right, or something. Right. You know, I was just, and I, that, it sort of, that experience taught me cinematic storytelling, you know, narratively. That's um, how you learn. And huh? I was like, oh, I think I'm ready to do this. And I realized that all of this, what had seemed like a hairpin turn before, being an actor and putting all my effort into acting and then, all of a sudden, I'm dropping that and being a photographer. It was like, why? Who? I'm so fickle. So you then, know? when you had, and the, now it was like, oh, it was all adds yeah. up, and the editing, and oh, you know, you trained yourself perfectly for exactly yeah. what you wanted to do. Exactly, it was like yeah. a 20 year film school, you right? Know? But uh, but then that allowed me because I didn't go to film school and I didn't, I wasn't told this is how you make a movie. You know, when I got on the set of my first feature, which I had done the way you're supposed to do it, you write the f- script, you find the people. Which movie? It was called We Go Way Back. It's yeah. going to be out finally this fall. It was never released? No, sort of almost released. And then it won Slam Dance and got Best what Cinematography year? Award 2006. And, and now uh, it's going to be released. Shot on 35. How do you feel about that? I'm so happy. It's Yeah, it'll be you almost like the, movie the 10 still? year. Oh, yeah. Oh, and there's still friends of mine who say, I think it's still my mom. Well, I mean, it's my mom, but that's still her favorite. Well, it's good she's your friend. She's my friend. Yeah. She's my buddy. Um, but yeah, when I was making that movie, it became all of a sudden about, um, it was my first time on a set. So two things happened. I became, uh, just fell in love with the collaborative mm-hmm. aspect of it. And I'm yeah. a total control freak. So it was right. terrifying, but it was also really <laughs> liberating, you know, and yeah. to see, oh my God, it was beautiful. Yeah. And so I knew I really wanted to make art with other people and in relationship with other people. But it was so hard on the actors who I had like coddled and 
taken care of, you know, t- really took care of and brought the best out of in the audition process. So it was just me and them in a room with like one little video camera. And then on set, you know, we had this huge hulking 35 millimeter camera and smoke machines and all these bodies. And, and they were just like, ah, you know, and the whole thing yeah. all of a sudden. And I was like, oh my God, this is, cause it was my first time making a move on set. I've been on the post side of things, but I never, right. and it was like the way that the traditional way to make movies is putting up obstacle after obstacle um, in front of the most important work on the set, which is the actor. Right. Because if the actor, no matter how gorgeously lit it is, if the acting doesn't resonate, doesn't feel real, you know. Not going to work. It's not going to work. Yeah. And so that, and I, so then I took a cue, you know, from Dogma 95, from the French New Wave, whatever. And then my second film, you know, I just ejected everybody from the set. And it was just me and my, and my buddy DP Ben holding cameras. Yeah. We and I was like flies on the wall. I developed those those characters for the people. This is in the second movie. Yeah, my effortless brilliance. And we were in a cabin in the woods, you know. And I'm basically I wanted to feel like a documentary. I wanted to feel so real, you know. I don't want it to feel written. Did you and get so, it all improvised? And I got it, and it got into it went to. Yeah, all I wanted to do was get into South by Southwest. It was in the it was in the you know narrative competition, dramatic competition, and it. Um, IFC bought it. I was like, what? <laughs> You're kidding. Okay. And then my next movie, which was Hump Day, I knew, okay, I can make a movie this way. And what do I want to do with this one? And it was, I wanted the tightness of the, I wanted the momentum, narrative momentum, and the tight editing that Puffy Chair had, the Duplass movie, uh, Duplass Brothers movie, Puffy Chair. And I wanted it to be, yeah, I wanted to have more of a plot driven. Um, when, now, if I recall correctly in that movie, um, these guys... We're going to have sex. Indeed. So it's... uh, But they didn't. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, it's all right. It's been out forever. Why didn't they? Because they were truly straight. And it was... those. Here's what happened. We shot that that movie in order. And we all agreed that we would only attempt to make this movie. And we would only put it out. I would only put it out. Explain the premise again. Well, the premise is that these two guys who really bonded in college and were like the same wild, yeah, nutty, right, whatever, right. mushroom trips and whatever, breaking to the zoo and just all kinds of crap, weird stuff. And they were going to go on this motorcycle trip together. And then one of them bags out and kind of goes into this. He becomes completely domesticated. So Mark Duplass's character is has a, a house and a wife and they're trying to get yeah. pregnant. And meanwhile, his buddy... Josh Leonard's character is is just continued. Tra- he's a nomad. He's an artist. Searching. He's traveling the world. He's searching. He's searching. So they have to- two totally different um, trajectories. And then it's about ten years later when the artist, nomadic artist, shows up on the doorstep of the domesticated dude, and they um, immediately engender this. Like what happens for Mark's character is basically, oh shit, you know, he takes stock of stock of who he is. You know, I'm really interested in that sense of like who do we imagine that we are, and then when you have have those moments of like. Kind who of were we and who, of, were, yeah, who like, am I really yeah, now? Yeah. Shit. Cause he sees what he sees himself through the lens of his friend. You right. know, oh, I'm in the doorway. I'm standing in the doorway of this like nice house with coffee table books on my coffee table mm-hmm. and, you know, on my white, there's literally a white packet fence out front. And so, um, if he freaks out, he's like, no, 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 I'm not that guy inside. I'm still this wild, crazy dude and I'm up for anything. And they engender this sense of competition in each other like ridiculous right kind of out duding each other yeah and so ultimately it Those ends up dudes. that yeah. yeah they yeah. end up trying to outdo each other by 
doing each other, but you know, or, or daring each other to, to do each other. So they they go to this crazy party. Like a day later, they're at this party with this in this artist commune, and they all the all the people there are um, going to make movies for this local porn festival that is real that Dan Savage founded um, called Hump and. And there, and the idea of hump is that you're making alternative stuff. You're doing, you're not just making straight porn. You're right. you're playing around with a form and right. having fun with it, and and so um, or doing something avant garde or whatever. And so here's Josh Leonard's character as this artist, and he's like, "Well, I'm going to do that," you know. And they're like, "Oh yeah, what are you going to do that's going to actually be worth, you know, putting into a festival like this?" And they come up with the most out there idea they can come up with, which is two straight dudes having sex right and they're you know they're drunk and they're high and whatever and so the next so the whole rest of the movie is just this this moving towards that <laughs> well it's moving towards the fallout of having agreed to the dare you know basically daring each other that yeah, first I, night and they try and let each other off the hook the next day but neither of them wants to be let off the hook because they're like hey they're competing i'm yeah. cool yeah. I'm, I'm cool enough to do this but you're the one I think you're trying to get out of this and it's like i'm not trying to get out of this and so it's just ridiculous because it's not they want they don't want to do it it's like both of them are terrified to do it, so it's it's uh right. I remember that. And then and I, we I, shot the whole thing in order, and it, and I had the whole thing outlined, but it, the, except for what would happen in the hotel room. And the idea was that we would get there, and then I, you know, I said, okay, you guys really know who these dudes are, and I'm going to entrust you to to really honestly enact this scene the way it would really play out. So really weird sidebar that there was a big French uh, production company. That bought the rights and made a remake of it. It's like a five million dollar remake of my tiny micro budget movie. Is, is it out yet? Uh, it's not out here because it bombed there and they never cleared the rights for oh, music okay. to do right. it. But Did we were able to it? get a French version of it. Yeah. And show it in on a DVD, a special DVD player or whatever yeah. for like you know fifty yeah. people or right. whatever. And side by side, so we showed mine and then theirs, and it's I mean it's fascinating. It's wow, so fascinating. That's it's got kind of interesting. Charlotte Gainsbourg is in it, yeah. and you know it's. Crazy. Was it was it good? Um, I prefer mine, <laughs> but it's definitely it's fascinating. Yeah. I noticed that there there is a class. I don't know if it's a class, but you know your community and your way of life and the and the way of lives of the people that you're familiar with are in your movies. It's a very it's. It, mm. I notice it as being sort of specific because um, I notice it in Jill's movie in Afternoon Delight that you guys know the life you live that the type of people that are in your movies are people you would know and have dinner with but it is sort of specific and I mean I'm in that mm. world too but did you ever notice that though like a lot of people don't live like us <laughs> like you, you know like yeah like even like it's just it's it, there there was something about even uh, Ellen Page mm-hmm you know, making muffins or whatever she was pulling out of cupcake tin. Mm-hmm. That there, there, there is sort of an uh, an effort to authenticity that our generation seems to have. Yeah, um, you know, there's a book called Reality Hunger uh-huh. that is about that uh-huh. and about this this hunger that people have to see see authenticity. And for me, I mean, it just I've seen so many films. I mean, you take the wife character in Hump Day, I, even though she doesn't get nearly as much screen time as the guys, I wanted her to feel as fully, it's really important to me that she be as fully sort of fleshed out and three-dimensional as the guys because how many cardboard cutout wife, you know, whether a harpy right. or sure. the whore with the heart of gold right. or I remember we saw the, not to dump on it, but when we saw Hangover and Ed Helms is getting screamed at by his 
right. horrible fiance and my husband leans over to me and says, I think she's supposed to be the bitch. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, really? You know, I mean, yeah. it's like, hello, you know, yeah. give me a break. And, and so, um, that is in general incredibly important to me, no matter what, if I'm using a script or I'm using, you know, partially scripted and partly improvised or it's all improvised or you have people who like really need this, the text as the spine of their performance, which many great actors are like that. They're not writers, they're actors. Whatever it is that the method is, I always want it to feel like flesh and blood human beings on the screen sure. that are, um, and that's because that's the only way that it really resonates with me. Do you think you could bring what you do with actors to a period piece or to a, uh... Uh, do you have plans to sort of challenge yourself in those? I'm levels? attached to actually a period piece that HBO. I'm not a creator, but mm-hmm. they came to me and asked if I would direct um, a miniseries that has uh, Anna Paquin and Jack Black, and that was announced a few months ago. So I, yeah. can, I can talk about that. But um, and I don't know when that's going to happen. But one of the reasons was, yeah, I was really intrigued, you know, to see to to explore that territory. And like, I just, I actually um, am going to do a This American Life story. It's not a it's not a um, period piece. Well, it's a little, it's a few years ago. It's based on a real life story. One of their podcasts that, um, one of their um, episodes that was very popular called The Mysterious Incredible Case of the P.I. Moms. And uh, amazing, crazy story that's like a comedy caper. Right. It reminded me a little bit of Dog Day Afternoon, uh-huh. you know, in that it's a real story, but it's it just goes everywhere. Anyway, very exciting. Um and I want to, you know, it's a different genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to continue to see how I can bring that same authenticity and honesty right. and grounded character-based. Uh-huh. And all the humor needs to come from that grounded character-based place instead of, like, I'm not as interested Jokes. to do just, yeah, right. just a broad comedy that doesn't, you know. Those are, those are hard yeah. in a way that, that it's it's making something that's completely unnatural seem slightly yeah. acceptable. And then you get like a like bridesmaids. I thought was brilliant. Well, yeah, it's great because the the women were real. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so you, they do they get put into types. some, you know, there's right. there's the shitting right. and farting and vomiting, you know, scene, but. But right. throughout, you really, yeah, yeah. You, you feel for them, you feel with them because you believe in them and yeah. like their relationships and stuff. And how old's your son? He's 16, and it's so fun to start 16. showing him. I mean, I've been doing it for a while now, but, you know, it's so great to be able to relive my favorite because what we do is watch movies, right? So, um, you know, going to see Mad Max Fury Road was incredible. We'll go see all these, every action movie. Yeah. But, um, you know, we showed him Jaws recently. It's like, oh, yeah, you can see Jaws. Like, and I hadn't seen Jaws since forever. It's equally as terrifying. And every afterwards, time. he was like, he was like, yeah, it was a good movie. Can we see a comedy next? Like, <laughs> can we see some Monty Python? And we saw, he'd already seen Holy Grail. So we showed him Life of Brian. And I hadn't seen, again, Life of Brian forever. He's never laughed so hard in his life, like, continuously. He loves to laugh. And I was really impressed with, I was like, I was like, oh my God, I saw all kinds of brilliance in it that I hadn't even been aware of, of before. Life, in Life of Brian? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, real smart. it's such a great commentary. And, and he's deaf, your he's son? He's deaf, yeah. Totally. Yeah, he had meningitis when he was a year old. We almost lost oh, him. Oh, terrifying. It was... Jeez. It was really, really scary. I don't recommend it. But he stuck around and... um Yeah. And uh, so what we signed with him. What is that experience? Like, how is, how is that sort of change your perception of reality? It changes... It changes everything, but both the experience of having him be like he was on a he he became basic, basically unconscious. He was like on a heart breathing heartbeat machine for 
um, like almost a week, yeah. and then slowly he was able to wean off it. And all the in the ICU, you know, and the, there were nurses who were just angels on earth. These one year old, he was there. He's one. Yeah, they, he, they said to us as soon as he was came out of it, they were like, we were really worried because usually they come out of it, of it faster if they're right. gonna if they're gonna come out of it. Ten yeah. percent of the babies that oh, age God, die. What an awful and, time. Yeah, yeah, and it totally changed our relationship. To parenting, you know, like my mom is the first to tell you as an early childhood educator that a certain amount of benign neglect is a really healthy thing, you know, mm-hmm. to, because you give the kid a space yeah. to, to explore their world and stuff. But in order to teach a deaf child language, like you, it has to all, there's no osmosis. They're not going to get anything right, right, overhearing gonna, a right, conversation right, right. at the grocery store or the zoo. Mm. They need to like look right at you and get it. Right. And so it's totally, hungry for it. I mean, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, and whether it's interpreting what, conversations going on over here or, mm. you know, whatever it is. And so it totally changed us as parents because we had to, you know, shift, learn this but, thing. Yeah. But also finding out like here he was this little tiny, you know, this little tiny body. There's, you know, it started with very dramatically with firefighters in our, in our house all around him turning blue on the floor. And I mean, you know, it was very, very dramatic. Oh and then God. we rushed to the hospital, all that. And then he's there and we have our full-time nurse in the ICU. It's like a five-star hotel. You know, you're just like, um, and then you w- take a walk around the hospital and you see the two-month-old next door, you know, and the baby's this big. And then you see the parents uh, in the cafeteria and you realize, and you just, you're aware that ki- babies die, kids die. It's it's crazy. Like it never, it's something that you really can't imagine because it's so unimaginable. It's so wrong. Yeah. But yeah, you know, kids yeah. die. Yeah. And um, And so just to know that. You know, I mean, I still to this day, it's years and years and years later, and I still, I go and look at him sleeping and just like, I'm so glad you're here, man. I, I can't even tell you. <laughs> and I tell, I came across this journal the other day. We moved houses. And so I was like going through all these books and I just opened it. Here's, you know, Milo's hospital journal. It's like, oh shit. And I like looked up, you know, and I was plunged back into that moment oh. and I was just weeping and weeping, you know, and I go over and try and explain to him. <laughs> He's just looking at me like... Oh, good, mom. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> anyway, so yeah, no, it changes a lot uh-huh. for sure. And, you know, just that sense of how mortal we yeah. all are. Fragile. Yeah, so fragile. That's crazy. Yeah. So, okay. Um, no, well, I think we're probably done. Oh. But, but, because now I'm like a little choked up. But the, the you've worked with um, Solway. Uh, never have work, gotten oh, to didn't? work with her. Oh, we, I st- you we, did. we met each other at, uh, at Sundance. We were there right. at the same time. Touchy Feely was there with yeah. Afternoon Delight. Fucking love that movie. Afternoon mm. Delight. Fell in love with Catherine Hahn more than I already had been in love with yeah. her. She's unbelievable. Yeah. I would love to work with her someday. Um, and Transparent, I think is yeah. unbelievable. But, uh, yeah, so we know each other and we're sort of in the same, yeah, you know, there's this world. sort of online yeah, women right. filmmaker, you know, sure. booster club, <laughs> which is awesome. That's great. Um, same with Ava DuVernay and, you know, it's really nice to have, I actually, I was, I was on the jury one year at, um, Sundance and I, and gave her the best directing award for her film, Middle of Nowhere and, and had no idea she was a fan. And so with like the two of us kind of bonded because I was so excited to give it to her and she was so excited to get it from me and it was like, ah, but, right. um, yeah, no, she's. She's, yeah, yeah, there's an amazing community out there. Well, good. Well, are, are you okay? Mark. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for letting me do this and for crying. Well, I'm at a weird point and so I don't know what's going on with me. It's not no. hard to make me cry. Oh, yeah. Well, but, um, the same way. Good talking to you. It was really great talking to you, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. 
That was Lynn Shelton and me, August 2015. Did you feel it? Did you feel it? When she left that day, I called up Brendan McDonald, my producer, and I said, I, I don't know what just happened, man, but in some, it, it, I could see some alternate reality that, you know, I was with her. There is an alternate reality where I'm with that person. I could have been with that person at some other point in time. And that alternate reality became the reality for like the past year. You know, after I talked to her on the podcast, you know, I wanted to work with her. She couldn't do the first season of Marin, but she came in on board on the, the final season of Marin and did a couple of episodes. And then by coincidence, we were on glow together and we constantly talked. We always engaged. I lit her up. She lit me up and I love talking to her. I loved everything about her. So good at everything. She was so good. She could fucking sing, you guys. I mean, we used to sit and play occasionally. I get a little shy, but we were finally breaking the kind of let's hang out and sing songs ice. And she had a voice. She would sing every day in the bathtub. Every day she could sing. God, she could sing. And she created films that were so intimate and so personal. And so she's so acutely sensitive to, to who people are and how to get who they are out of them. And I'm not I'm not saying that just because I'm projecting it's true. So we worked together on Glow. And then she I asked her to direct my comedy special Too Real. And then she wanted to make a movie with me, but we never got around to finishing it. So she created sort of trust with Michael O'Brien. Uh, and I was in that movie. And we do a scene together in that movie, which is amazing. And then she did my last special that's on now. End Times Fun. But I got to be honest with you, you guys, going over, I can't get certain things out of my mind. Sadly, the good things are there, but the bad things are just too close right now. And I, I don't even know if I should be out in public talking. But this is what I do. And this is where I'm at. And there's no right or wrong with grief. It comes in waves. I just know that this person has touched so many lives that Lynn Shelton is so important and so inspirational and so she was so kind and so charismatic and, and full of joy and positivity. And it, it shouldn't, I mean, shouldn't everyone be so lucky to make, you know, that kind of impact on so many people, so many lives, so many people loved her for so many different reasons. Strong woman role model, but just also just, you know, basically a decent person, a good person to all people she worked with. But she was also, you know, focused in what she wanted something. She figured out how to get it or to make it work creatively. But again, the outpouring of love and support for me, for her family, has been powerful. And uh, if there's anything she taught me, really, is that people do love me, that she loved me, and that, you know, there's nothing I can do about that. And and, and I realized, well, I, I 
was learning how to accept it, and I'm accepting it now. I accepted it from her, and I loved her, and I'm happy you all loved her. And so many people have such a longer history and such different memories. And I just, I, I hope you're leaning on those and that they're all good and that you, if you don't know her that well, you get familiar with her work. But the love coming at me, I, I'm, it's helping me. I've never felt grief like this or this bad. And my brother came immediately out here. And I had to say yes, even though I was like, oh, no, my, is this how this is going to go? I'm going to have my brother come over, and, and I'm going to get COVID on top of this, and my brother might have it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not, I'm going to sit in here alone with my fucking sick cat. Lynn Shelton was an amazing person, an amazing artist, powerful woman, powerful, charismatic, joyful presence in the world, and she's gone. It's a horrendous loss for a lot of people. My heart goes out to her family and to her friends and anybody who knew her. And um, I guess we'll get through this. I'll tell you something. You know, Lynn was already separated from her husband and I was still struggling with feelings and I was trying to keep my feelings in. I was still seeing somebody and we couldn't really begin anything, but I had these feelings and I'm very good at not acting on feelings. To be honest with you, I can shut them down. I can shut them down, but I could not shut them down. And, um, and, and the thought of, of her starting some other part of her life without me now that she could which is too much for me to handle and 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 I had to make a choice and I said this to her I said you know if um if I don't try to honor my feelings for you I'll regret it for the rest of my life and I and I did what was necessary to try to do that and it was the greatest decision I ever made. And I don't have any regrets about it. I'm sorry other people got hurt. But now, whatever she gave me, it's it's going to stick. And it'll, it'll elevate me for the rest of my life once I get past this horrendous loss. I know that. She liked my guitar playing, among other things. She used a lot of the little riffs I do at the end of this show for the soundtrack of Sort of Trust. And uh, she encouraged me to compose a piece, a blues piece, which I did with Tal Wilkenfeld and had a bunch of pro studio guys record it. And Lynn was in the in the booth and I was just doing the guitar and looking at her, watching me. I was nervous to be playing with Doyle Bramhall, you know was there too and but this is uh this is how we're going to go out today joyously this will take flight i can't ne- i will never forget all the beautiful things this is new boots <laughs>